Hello, I'm Rabbi Iggy, and welcome to Tattoos and Torah. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Tattoos and Torah. I'm Rabbi Iggy. Thank you for joining us again. We know that the destruction of the temple is commemorated on the ninth day of the Hebrew month of Av, Tisha B'Av. But the day commemorating the siege over Jerusalem that led to its destruction was commemorated this week, the tenth day of the Hebrew month of Tevet. Yes, we commemorate the destruction of the temple, and that's really important, the big destructive and history-changing tragic event of our people. But if we're spiritually honest, by the ninth day of Av in the year 70 CE, it was already over. By then, the cataclysm is a fair accompli. It's gonna happen, it's inevitable. The city is starved, sieged. By the ninth day of Av, the deal is done and there is nothing we can do about it. You see, the time to change repent, change the force of history, was way before then. What we commemorated this week is by far a more important moment, which often we neglect. But I always think about it on that day. You see, 18 months ahead of time, that's the day that's worth noting. Why am I talking about this? Because much like a relapse, is often the inevitable result of a process that you haven't intervened on. The moment to stop one is not just before it happens, but way ahead and way ahead in time, more than on that moment. Our tradition has made this day, the 10th day of Tevet this week, a reminder, and we can learn from it, a recurring point in time to bring awareness that we have to think about the pattern of our behaviors and to stop and check in. In our case, in Jewish life, we do this by fasting, for example. Fasting, in that sense, is a very old spiritual tool. So I also want to think about fasting in a few different ways and what it brings up for me. The most basic taxonomy, of course, is deprivation of food or drink. And it is very important to note that I'm not supporting deprivation as a way of control or any support of any food restrictions in that sense as a way of control and as a way of addiction. But when we think about fasting in the ancient traditions, we want to be considered and be careful in the consideration of the day-to-day behaviors that can be modified and bring awareness, that kind of fasting. Fasting can become a way of thinking about things we need to slow down, take a beat, consider. In that sense, you can have a shopping fast, you can have a takeout fast, a TV fast, not just food and drink. Or, of course, the other articulated ancient fasts in our tradition, a speaking fast. In fact, I used to prescribe that to some clients sometimes to take a 24 or 12 hour speaking fast, to take it upon themselves. Some of us take up too much space, and we become unaware of other people's space. Other times, we can't stand the silence or the void. 
We are addicted to being referred to, talked to, looked at. We leave very little room for awareness and thought and mindfulness. For some of us, practicing prescribed silence can create space for more awareness and more space for silence as a spiritual practice, which can lead to more space for ourselves and for others. It can be very difficult. Most people fear the loneliness, the void, the silence. Silence frightens them. Silence in a conversation, silence in their life. And some people experience that as something really terrifying. When I first started practicing silence, originally through the old Buddhist tradition of Vipassana, I realized how much louder my thoughts actually became. And I realized that I was actually using speech, talk, music, everything to drown out my feelings and my thoughts, to drown them out and to drown myself out. I remember the first time I went on a three-day retreat. Uh, it was in the desert. First day, I was settling into the newness of it. Right? You eat in front of a wall, you avoid eye contact with others, you retreat into yourself. The first day I thought, this is nice, it's relaxing. But the second day, the noise level started rising. And I realized how much I wanted, how much I needed to say, good morning, how are you? Some kind of vocal interaction to drown out the sounds that were rising in my head. The words seemed to have been penting up inside me and it was very difficult to keep them in. The noise, the cacophony was really deafening, even though it was all in utter silence. The remainder of the second day and third day was very difficult to the end. But at the end of practicing with journaling, observing my own thoughts, I did uncover so much more of my own headspace, train myself to be aware of it, transitions of the contours of me, the contours of my world, my feelings, and others around me. I often hear it and we talk with people in addiction, it comes up when we're talking about going to sleep. A lot of people hate going to sleep. People fall asleep on the couch. Going to bed can be terrifying or something that people avoid. So they exhaust themselves until they just fall asleep in front of the TV or computer or whatever. My own kids at some point in their life constantly fell asleep with music in their ears, with the earbuds. It's a self-soothing mechanism. Often when the thoughts and the feelings are too difficult or the ruminations start and are happening, it's very difficult to stop them and it's terrifying and anxiety-provoking and fear-provoking. So of course we distract ourselves. We fall asleep rather than go to sleep. The practice of silence can help that. As does of course sleep hygiene and ritual and I talk about that in a different podcast and our Sleep hygiene and ritual is in our website as a journaling tool. When I think about some of our traditions, the psalmist describes our soul, our inner light, as a still small voice. That still small voice, for some, the voice of God or our soul, however you want to describe it, is often drowned out by talk and music and noise and chatter and, of course, addictions too. Finding that voice requires dedicated attention. It requires 
taking away the sound or behaviors that are too loud or too distracting. By leaning into the silence or the hunger or the space we create, we make room for something we can refine, something that we can refine as a path to that small voice. That way we can mark a trail that will always be available for us to find and use. Silence, of course, as a practice is something that all humans have a right to, but not all have access to. For many, it seemed like privilege. For many, the demands of life seem to prohibit the practice of silence or mindfulness. Many people don't think they deserve it or have time for it. And we as a society have promoted that. So providing tools for practice of this silence, of meditation, of mindfulness, is in fact a social justice issue, and a deep one at that, to allow people to realize that no matter who you are, where you are, you are allowed to, and you have permission, and you have the need, and you have the right to take time for practices of spirituality, like silence and time. It's illumining a basic right everyone has and can and should take advantage of. It's another way to live life as with a statement of worth. I am worthy no matter who I am and where I am. I can take time to be better, to have space, to have time, to have silence. You may ask, how do you need if you need to fast? Well, there are four days a year that you need to fast, quote-unquote, in our tradition. Of course, need is a question of how much are you willing to adhere to tradition, so it's up to you. You see, fasting in many ways is not about deprivation. It can be a spiritual tool that resets our intention. In that sense, our tradition is very clear about the tension between when to eat and when to refrain from eating, when to speak, when to be silent... In Ecclesiastes, it's written, right? To everything there is a season, the time to every purpose under the heavens. It continues there, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up. Right? It continues... And if you're all hearing that song in your head from the 60s, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to rend and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Those are the different ways that even then we have to consider all that is in front of us and how we make space for everything. So the question of when to fast is in fact prescribed. This is not actually a decision that you have to make. 
by yourself. You can follow the spiritual teachings of our traditions. And if we use them properly, they stand as beacons. They become routinized, which is essential to the meaningful and spiritual life. They're part of the routine. Silence is not the same as thinking or meditating, of course, or contemplation. Silence is about finding a space of rest and pause. In its most basic form, it allows us to just be, observe, and to acknowledge that we are constantly pushed to judge, to separate. What we see and feel becomes something we judge and put in different boxes. We think about it as good or bad, right or wrong, but in silence, we can observe ourselves and the world and try to find each of these in each other. Not just in each box, but how they blend together. How each piece is in the other and vice versa. Speed and slowing down, masculine and feminine, beauty and fear, sad and happy, all in one another, all together. All mixed together, part of these continuums, these bars that are part of each other. Growing up, as I did, as a traditional Orthodox Jew, after you say the Shema before bedtime, the, the nightly prayer, which again is on the sheets in our website, you are not allowed to speak until you wake up the next morning and say the first words of gratitude. Again, here is a prescribed silence that is flanked by two routines, which is prayer and meditation. That practice of silence can be used in other times of the day. And if you ask yourself, okay, how do I practice the silence? I would say you have to decide on a time for practicing silence. And you have to make sure that it's the same time every day. That's a good way to start. Start with 10 minutes and build up. Turn off your phone, of course, TV, music, computer, put down books, other reading material. You may want to light a candle if that inspires you, or look at a view, or just a point in space. And then sit quietly and rest and hold. Breathe. Observe. Listen to the silence. Allow yourself to find respite from thinking, reviewing, planning, imagining. Just be. Listen to the space that's created. You can breathe deeply, mindfully, bringing in the silence. You can pay attention to the silence between your breath. You can use box breathing. I've talked about this before. Box breathing is a type of breathing that's very helpful. Box breathing is you inhale at the count of four. One, two, three, four. As you inhale, you hold that breath for four. One, two, three, four. Then you exhale at the count of four. One, two, three, four. And then you hold again four bars. And you repeat. At the end of your time of silence, Find expressions of gratitude or love. Use words that express those. Maybe a prayer, a mantra. Maybe say, I love you to yourself, to others. Thank you. You can then put out the candle and go about your business. Let it be. 
you should try it. If we go back to the 10th day of Tevet, there is the inevitability of the destruction, as I spoke about. Right? That which is happening if we didn't repent or change in time. The question is then, what happens the day after the destruction? Is it done? Forever damned? Here too, our tradition teaches us something that we can take to recovery. Even if something is destroyed, and even if you've had a relapse, there will be more opportunities to repent, more opportunities to reflect, to learn from the destruction. That's the beauty of the Jewish ritual, of all rituals. There is a relapse. You broke your progress, but there's always another day. You can't say you're done. There's always another opportunity. There's always more tshuva. You start again. And you put there in your life reminders again of the awareness and the learning and where you are. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being with us. I'll see you next week. I'm Rabbi Iggy out of the Chuva Center. This podcast was recorded by Chuva Center. I want to thank our team, Ben Lichman, Grace Sheed, and Joe Yalowitz, who make this all possible and make sure that the guests and I sound as best as we can. Thank you all for listening. Check out our Instagram and our website at Chuva Center or chuvacenter.org.